You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 56 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Alison, this week? I'm very, very well, but you're actually not with me at all because <laughs> you're elsewhere. You're having a fabulous time with your passport while I am stuck at home with my children. So, you know, let's not pretend, shall we? I am having a fabulous time with my passport. I have been in Phoenix and then a couple of days in San Francisco and now I am in L.A., and are you doing, you know, worky things or are, are you just yeah, have partly. a great time to make me jealous? Oh, well, a bit of both. But um, <laughs> in LA, I'm visiting a, a good friend of mine whose name is also Alison and she is oh. an entertainment reporter. And so um, it, I'm hanging out with her and basically, you know, I, I don't really need to do touristy things in LA. I've already done Disneyland and all that kind of stuff. So we're just hanging out and celebrity spotting and, you know, all that kind of thing. And and uh, I, I quiz her about all the latest people who she's been interviewing and what they're really like and I get the down low and the goss so it's been fun. So anything you'd like to share? Alas, alas, I am, you know, it's in the cone, (laughs) you know. I love the cone. cone. So (laughs) I wish I could if only, if If only all of these things could be published. When we stop recording you're going to tell me everything, okay? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry listeners. (laughs) All right, let's see what's been happening in the world of writing and publishing I've got, this week. I've got an announcement. You get to oh. move on without oh, me. Oh, yes, sorry. Yeah, just because you're being fabulous, I can also be fabulous, a little bit fabulous. Okay, be fabulous. Okay, well, guess what? What? Tell me. I'm going to the Sydney Writers' Festival and I'm not only going, I'm on the program. Woo-hoo! I know, I'm so excited. I'm actually doing several things at the Sydney Writers' Festival. I'll Do be, tell. Well, I'm um, teaching a workshop. Uh, oh, yeah. which is um, open if you want to come, like feel free to sign up. What's the workshop on? Um, it is about writing with children. I've been asked to do a workshop for people who are, you know, finding it difficult to make the time to write um, around families because, oh. well, it's one of those things, you know, I think I've written several blog posts about this, but um, it's writing is a very, very inconvenient thing to do if you are a parent and this is about, you know, how I manage to do all the 8 billion things that I do, plus write books, plus have a family, plus, you know, do all the things. So uh, I'm, I'm coming with tools and tips and advice and all the different things. Um, it's an original workshop, writing, because oh, it's not writing for children, it's writing no, with children. it's writing children. with children. Children <laughs> so under your feet kind of thing. Under your feet, at your, on your lap, wow. as I have done in the past. It's that's about that. Great. And um, at that, so that's on the 20th. And then on the 21st, I'm... 20th take, of? Uh, sorry, May. Mm-hmm. On the 21st of May, I'm actually on a panel discussing um, social media for authors. Oh, yes. And I'll be talking about um, lots of different things, obviously blogs and all sorts, but also Facebook. I'll be focusing on Facebook for authors. Right. Um, and then on the 24th, which is Children's Day, I will be down um, at Pier 2 slash 3, which is the headquarters, um, taking part in a day of readings, uh, children's authors. And it's a big day where kids can come in and meet their authors and listen to oh, readings nice. and um, have a look around. And it's a, it's a big Enid Blyton theme this year. So it's oh. very exciting. So, yeah, look at me. Very exciting. Now I have two reasons to go to the Sydney Writers' Festival. Yes, and we'll put the program, uh, a link to the program in the show notes. Aren't you going to ask me what they are? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Jeez, we're not doing this very well today, are we? What are you, I just thought your two reasons were that you just liked going well, and Allison now you get and to Tate. see me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what are your reasons for going? Well, one is Alison Tate. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> clearly. And the other is Alan Cumming. You oh, you there? talked about him last week or the week yeah. before. Yes. Did you tickets. get your tickets? I oh, did. Well done. So, um, no, I mean, seriously, there are lots of fantastic things to see at this So, Al times two. Al 
Owls ones too. I like it. She yeah. said, I'd like to meet. I'd like to meet other owls. So. Yeah, let's make it happen. <laughs> let's make that happen. Yeah. All right. Anyway, mm. moving on. Moving on. Yes. What's been happening in the world of writing and publishing this week? Well, I thought I'll kick that off. Good. And uh, I found. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> it's um, Joanne Harris has gone nuts. Jo- Joanne Harris, who you know uh, wrote the novel Chocolat and yes. a number of other ones, um, yes. has uh, gone off about this app because oh. there's an app that replaces swear words in books. So there's a couple of people in um, in America who were, you know, going through their children's books and realising that there were, you know, bad words in there. So it's called the Clean Reader app and it's dreamed up by these two parents, Jared and Kirsten Morn from Idaho, oh. and uh, they decided to make it when their daughter came home from school a little sad after reading a book with a few swear words in it. So what they did, they commissioned this firm to create a program that would filter the profanities from books and uh, and so that the the reader, you know, so children presumably, can read the books without all these bad words in them. So to give you an example, <laughs> um, uh, uh, oh, my God becomes, oh, my goodness, Jesus Christ becomes G's, bitch becomes witch, and words like vagina, anus, buttocks, and clitoris all become bottom. So, yes. <laughs> and breast becomes chest, badass becomes tough, and penis becomes groin. So, <laughs> so uh, there's a scene from Jackie Ashenden's Living in Secret uh, that says... Which is a romance Yep. Yes. So, you know, you can, there's, you know, certain words that are in that book, but the, the scene now reads when you use the app, where shall I freak you, Victoria? Where do you want my groin? I want it in my bottom. (laughs) I can't believe you just read that to me. (laughs) But it's a clean, it's clean reading. So we won't get an explicit. um, I just want to dissolve into hysterical giggles at this point. But anyway, um, gosh. Okay. What do you say about that? Oh, look, I I don't agree with it, I have mm-hmm. to say. I no. think if you don't want your kid to read a book with swear words, you know, don't give them the book. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that, like, you know, like I, I've got a son who's 11 and he reads extremely well. He's been reading um, – you know, he sort of moved on to young adult fiction quite young, but I I have a look at them and I mm. decide whether or not I, I mean, I read them and I decide whether or not I think they're appropriate for him and I don't ever um, not think they're appropriate based on language choice, although, you know, he's he's never come home with anything that's made me go, oh, no, there's no way. Mm. Um, so you've never, the, you've never not let him read it? No, because I think, you know, he understands. He's old enough to understand that swear words exist. Mm. He's old enough to understand that they're not appropriate uh, language for him in most situations. Um, he's got a mother who, unfortunately, due to her many years of being a journalist, has got a very unfortunate potty mouth (laughs) and I do try so hard not to um, expose my children to that often but sometimes I, I mean, you know, really, I'm I'm a shocker. I mean, you you wouldn't know it to listen to me speaking so eloquently right now but I am a shocker and most journalists I know are absolute Mm. potty mouths. But have you ever not let him read a book, not because of the swear words but because of any other reason? Yes, there are books that I have said to him he's too young for and they're mostly because they um, there are themes in them that he's just hasn't been ready for, still isn't ready for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also go by, you know, my mum said to me many years ago, um, she said kids will only read um, what they will really only read what they're ready for. Mm. So he's had books that I've given him in the past that I've thought he was ready for, but he he doesn't get past chapter one. You know, mm. he's just not interested. And so I don't tend to censor, not not too much. Like I'm willing to let him have a go. He wanted to read Sherlock Holmes when he was about eight mm. and it was had murder in it and it had all sorts and people were sort of like, I've, I've read Sherlock Holmes. I know the level at which those things are discussed mm. um, and they're fairly mild. Um, so I said, sure, have a crack at that because it's pretty hard work, you know, like when you're eight. Mm. Um, so he, he pushed, he, he sort of went all the way through a full story, Study in Scarlet, the first one, mm. um, 
And I said to him afterwards, you know, we we talked about it and what, how much of it he understood. He understood all of it. He didn't read another one because it was hard work. Yeah, but really. my mum went out and found him because she's much more sensible than I am. She went out and found him an abridged version, like a kid, oh, a kid friendly version. Clever. And then he continued on with those. But I um I I don't say no. Like I'm not going to say no. Don't read it. But there are young adult books that I think you know this this he's not really ready for sex and. He's not ready for that stuff. He finds yeah. it all a bit icky, and um, so he doesn't read. So you won't be those. using the Clean Reader app. In short, no. No. Well, Joanne Harris has got her cranky pants on and she's attacked the toxic message the app carries to young people and she says that it's it's basically saying that body parts are shameful and must not mm. be mentioned by name. Mm. Well, it's, yeah, it's true. So mm. go, go, Joanne. But, you know, everything, if you want everything Clean Reader like- well, that's the thing. I mean, everything in life is not a bottom. And we go, the thing is that, you know, all they talk about with as a parent, all you hear about, you know, sex and body parts and stuff, talking to kids about it right from the time that they're little is that you have to use the appropriate terms, right? So you, you talk about vaginas and penises and things like that. Like, mm. and so then to then say that we're going to change them all in a, in books so that they're all bottom, mm. what kind of message is that? It's weird. Ridiculous. Weird. But anyway, to right. each their own. If yes, you would to like to use own. that, feel free. And tell us whether it works for you. Yes, please do. So we have another link this week from the Right Life uh, blog, and it's called The Key to Keeping Clients Happy Even When Delivering Bad News. And it's by James Chartrand, who uh, is a copywriter, I think, in Canada. Yeah, men with pens. That's right. Mm. So she is actually a woman, and her mm. name is really Louise. But <laughs> she, she writes under James Chatron. And um, one one of the things she's saying is that uh, it's not um, it's this attitude that some freelancers have of you know it's not my job to tell my client he's making mistake. My job is writing the content he paid me to write. And I come across this a lot too because one of the things James is saying is that you'll have happier clients and more respect if you are brave enough to be upfront and and tell them when they're doing things wrong. But one of the things that made me start thinking about this because I sometimes see people go from journalism into PR Mm. and suddenly they have clients. And in the world of journalism, you don't answer to clients. You just no. don't. I mean, you answer to your editor, of course, who's your boss, uh, but you don't have uh, this other, this third party that you need to appease or who is paying you apart from your employer. But absolutely in the world of PR, suddenly you are dealing with uh, clients and sometimes these clients don't have a lot of experience. That's why they've engaged a PR firm. And sometimes they make certain decisions that journalists find abhorrent or, uh, you know, they think it's not the right way or it's actually wrong or it's editorially ridiculous. And I've seen quite a lot of journalists crash and burn when they go into the world of PR because they can't get their mind around the whole I've got to be nice to my clients, Um, uh, you know, situation. Do you see that? I mean, of course, many, many do get their mind around it and are very successful in the world of PR, but um, I'm noticing it's it's fairly evenly split. Yeah, look, I think it's – I think it's always best to – like if if you get given a job and you think that it's actually not going to be particularly good or work particularly well, I I think – the best way to tell somebody that is to go back and say, look, this is a really great idea, but I think if I did it this way, mm. X, it would probably work even better and give them the choice. I think it's always a good idea to let people know if you think that there's um, going to be a problem. Yes. And I totally agree with you, though, that it, it does come as a shock if you go from um, – being the journalist who Mm. just gets to do what they want and the only person they make happy is their editor Mm. um, and dealing with a client. It's actually quite a different Mm. set of – it's a completely different set of parameters. And the other thing I think it's very important about is – and James does point this out in the story – is that if if what you agree to and then what the client wants are two completely different things you have to let them know because if the co- if you're if you're suddenly writing a job 
that you thought was going to be 1,000 words and is now 3,000 words and you're doing it for this for the price that you agreed, mm. um, you're going to be very unhappy and you're going to actually probably yes. not do a great job. Yes. So, you you know, if they come back to you with a brief that's ridiculously large for what they originally wanted, you've got to say, look, I'm really sorry, but when we originally talked about this job, we discussed X mm. and what you've sent me here is going to be Y mm. and is going to take me at least three times as long as we agreed. Mm. Um, so we either need to renegotiate the fee or we need to reassess the parameters of the work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, because I've also seen a number of journalists who don't have that negotiating skill or don't want to have that awkward conversation. And in, in the, Instead, they resent it, they seethe, and they think that the only way to do it is to present them with a huge bill at the end. Well, that's a great oh, shock no. to them. Yeah, I know journalists who do that. No. And, and I've heard, I've had, you know, the clients are shocked at the end, whereas you should have the awkward conversation up front for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and if it's blowing out and blowing out, you have to tell them. You've yeah. got to let them know what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah, most definitely. So you have a link this week. Do I? Goodness. Yes. Okay. <laughs> You, without this one crucial skill, you'll oh, I never do, write I well. do. Now, this was a link that caught my attention because it's a fantastic headline. Yes. Without this one crucial skill, you'll never write well. What is it? Dun, well, dun, I, I had to go and I had to go and look, didn't I? Yes. So I popped over to Writerly Life, which is the website that that this is on, yes. and and I had to go. Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. Because what they're saying is that you need this one important skill the power of observation. Mm. Mm. And you do need it to write well. Because if you're someone who's not looking at what's going on around you and not listening to what's happening around you, then you're going to find it extremely difficult to, A, if you're writing fiction, describe things come up with characteristics that are anything other than what you are, other than your own, um, you know, see, you know, moments, just... There's, a, there's an old saying that says that, you know, people walk past a thousand ideas mm. every single day and, you know, a good writer will see, you know, some of them mm. and a great writer will walk away with at least six. Mm. Now, that comes from observation. It comes from seeing what people are doing around you and it comes from extrapolating that into a different thing. But it also works for features. It also Absolutely. works for feature writing because I get my best story ideas by listening to what's happening around me, mm. by listening to what people are talking about, by listening to what they're looking at, um, you know, what they're watching, that kind of stuff. So observation is absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. And um, a great example of that, I was talking to one of our graduates, Catherine Rohde, and um, she's obviously great at observing trends and, you know, that sort of thing. She's a very prolific features writer. And she says that sometimes she goes to the gym and she's on the treadmill and, you know, watching whatever show is on the on the television and sometimes these you know breakfast shows or morning shows they talk about certain trends and they or they there's a news story that gives her an idea and while she's still on the treadmill she's tapping away a pitch to an editor on her phone so by the time she gets home, she's got a commission and like often she'll, she'll, she'll get a response while she's still on the treadmill and then she can st- start lining up interviews while she's multitasking at the gym. I think Goodness that's gracious. Right. That's amazing. That's, she's, yes. that's as good as Tristan Banks and his 2,000 words while he walks I along know. the beach. I These know. people are impressive. I know. We've got to um, like get better thumbs or something. I know we do. We've got to step up. What are we mm, doing? Come on. What are we doing? We're wasting our lives. <laughs> now. Um, I've got another one for you, and this is a yes. follow-up to a to a, an interview that we did again several podcasts ago with the amazing Peg Fitzpatrick, yes. um, where we were talking about social media and all of those sorts of things. Mm. Um, I came across uh, a link of hers, and it's an old link; it's from 2013, but it as it is as relevant today as it has as it was then, mm. um, and it is called "How to Create a Fantastic Social Media Plan for mm. Writers." Um, Now, this is a really comprehensive step-by-step going through each of the platforms, reasons to use them, reasons not to use them. Um, But what I really like about it is that she talks up front about creating a formula um, to work out how much time you need to put into your social media plan, you know, as a writer or whatever, um, for your goals. So she has three questions that you need to ask yourself. Why do I want to use social media? Mm. What do I want to accomplish? Mm. 
And how long do you have each day to spend on social media? Mm. So she talks about like your why might be to sell books, to connect with readers, to start to build a name for yourself. Your what do you want to accomplish is like gaining followers for your social media um, platforms or perhaps you want to create a niche following for your books or you want to build an author platform. And then you talk about how long you have each day. Is it 15 minutes in the morning? Mm. Is it an hour a day? What sort of time are you willing to commit? And then she breaks it down and she talks about how long you need to be on each platform for to actually get any benefit out of it. So, Mm. you know, for people... Like again, we we get a lot of questions around this, mm. um, which is the reason that we talk about it fairly regularly because we're getting asked. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that you know might help writers who are either emerging or you know in the middle of their careers or whatever decide how to go about their social media. Yeah, I, I, with the question, how long do you have to spend each day on social media? Um, I am always amazed because I was in a room full of authors, about fifty authors. Um, a few weeks ago and we were talking about social media and quite a you know big proportion of them I would say 30 40 percent uh were saying they just don't have any time for social media and I I was floored because it's not like it takes a lot of time (laughs) I, I, I was just floored that do you know what I think the problem is I think that there's a perception of it being incredibly time consuming because I think part of the problem is that people get onto social media and get sucked into looking random news feeds and looking at cats. Mm. But if you actually break down what the amount of time you actually have to be there, Mm. it's actually not very much at all. Like, you know, it's kind of 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there and um, I had I, one one of the authors was saying, oh, I'm going to outsource my social media. It's like, oh, my God, how disingenuous. You're not Coca-Cola. <laughs> you know, you, you need to understand. So maybe I just could, I had, I've had no words. Maybe they could outsource to me. I could make myself a whole new career out yes. of being the author's social media person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, no, really, I, I am surprised. But, I, you know, I, I would say that when you're building a blog, if you, you know, if you're using blogging as part of your platform, blogging, mm does take, you know, some time. Yes. Particularly when you start out because you're looking for ideas, you're not quite sure what you're doing, it probably takes you a bit longer to write a post, you might be posting more frequently, Mm. you know, you may need to invest a bit more time at the beginning. Once you've got everything in play, then it's a matter of of maintaining and Mm. keeping things up and that, you know, so, you know, I always think you're better off to put the time in early Mm. So that by the time you sort of things start happening for you, your time—I think time in the game is just as important as as how much time you put into it. Yeah, but anyway, mm. it's a good. We'll put the link in the show notes. It's a good uh, mm. sort of template so for you, for you to consider if you actually want to plan um, mm. from Peg, from Peg Fitzpatrick. Yes. So let us move on to our writing book this week, which is um, a book called Spell It Out. The Singular Story of English Spelling by David Crystal. Mm. Now, I must admit that um, this book has been on my shelf for a little while and I'm going to, uh, you know, it's it's one that I've been meaning to read and I'm finally (laughs) getting around to it. But basically it's... (laughs) All those hours on the plane. (laughs) Yes. You you know, you can't watch box sets all the time. It's the story of English spelling um, over the years, basically over the last 1,500 years and (laughs) how words got spelt the way they do because not all words are spelt in a very logical way. No. For example, why is there an H in ghost? You know, like Casper, the ghost. Mm, Uh, Well, (laughs) I know ghost. I'm all over it, yes. Why is there? Tell me. Well, William Caxton, inventor of the printing press, and his Flemish employees are to blame. Without a dictionary or style guide to hand in the 15th century in, you know, wherever it was they were, the typesetter simply spelt it the way it sounded to their foreign ears and it stuck. So there you go. So ghost to a foreign ear sounds like it's got an H in it. Well, to Flemish people. <laughs> I wonder how often seem... they were writing about, how often they were printing things about ghosts. How well, fascinating. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, like things like red D, we used to be R-E-D-E-Y or R-E, sorry, R E 
A-D-Y, ready, or mm. R-E-A-D-I-E. There are lots of words like that that mm-hmm. have, you know, morphed over the ages and now we've kind of used to them with a Y. But, yes, it's one of those um, books. Does it explain the I before E except after C but there's a thousand exceptions rule? Apparently it does, but I'm not up to that chapter yet. yet. (laughs) Can you come back to me on that? I'll let you know. I find that so interesting. I think there's more exceptions to that rule than there are rule, and so I can't understand how it became a rule. But anyway. Apparently 75% of English spelling is regular, but 25% is complicated. So... Really? Yeah, apparently, according to Only 25%. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Who is it? We are talking to Annabelle Smith, who is um, a Western Australian writer, and her book, um, Whiskey Charlie, is about to come out in the US, Mm. and it's been published here um, in Australia. Uh, I think it was last year or the year before. Um, It's coming out in the US, and it's very exciting. But she's... um, We've, we had a really interesting conversation. She's got um, she has a lot of interesting things to say, and I think um, she tried. Uh, she's well, she has self published a book as well, and we discussed you know self publishing versus traditional publishing. We talked about um, you know anything that surprised her about the book coming out in the US, and yeah, she's we had a great chat, and I'm I'm hoping that people will really enjoy it. Today I'm talking to Annabelle Smith, author of novels including Whiskey Charlie Foxtrot, which is released this month in the US as Whiskey and Charlie, digital interactive novel slash app The Ark, and a new map of the universe which was shortlisted for the WA Premier's Book Awards in 2005. She's currently working on Monkey Sea, an epic quest with a sci-fi twist featuring a monkey, an evil priestess, and the mother of all tsunamis, which sounds very exciting. So hi, Annabelle. Hi, Alison. So how far into Monkey Sea are you with the mother of all tsunamis and an evil priestess? <laughs> um, I'm not up to the tsunami, but uh, I am about 90% through the first draft, so how close exciting. to the end of a first draft, yeah. And how long has it taken you to get 90% of the way through a first draft, just to give our right, uh, give our readers, our listeners, an idea? It's taken me about 16 months, but actually for most of that time, I haven't been working on it. So in actual writing time, probably about eight months. Okay. And are you someone who plots your work out in advance or are you someone who sits down and with an idea for an evil priestess, a monkey and a tsunami and just starts writing? This book's been a little bit different to my other books, actually. My first two books were extremely, I was a total pantser, so I just sat down and Um, just whatever came out, came out, and I followed that path. My third book, I, with the arc, I kind of wrote myself into a little bit of a a corner at one point, Um, and that was when I sort of thought, maybe plotting could be useful. (laughs) With with, uh, Monkey See, it's going to be a trilogy, and so I Ah. thought that I might have to do a little bit of plotting. And also I applied for a grant to write the first draft, And for the grant writing process, I had to write a synopsis. And to write a synopsis of a book that you haven't started writing is a little bit tricky. Mm. Um, And I did have to kind of have some ideas about where the book might go in order to apply for the grant. But actually having those ideas I found really helped me to write the book. And so now I'm a little bit of a convert to plotting. Ah, but not a spreadsheet plotter, just more of a vague outline. Vague outline. I actually use an, an eight-point story arc is, is the kind of a, the formula that I use. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, well, perhaps you could start because I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the grant process and a few other things, but we, we might do that a little bit later in the podcast. Um, perhaps you could start by telling us um, about your writing journey. Like how did you come to be a published author in the first place? Sure. Well, I always loved reading and as a little girl liked writing stories, but I don't think I ever thought that that was something that a person could do as a job. Um, I went to university and I did an arts degree and in my second year of arts I was doing a couple of uh, a couple of lit units one semester and I had to read a book a week for each unit plus there was a kind of bonus book for each unit for the semester and one of the bonus books was Ulysses and the other bonus book was Moby Dick. Wow. Um, so I was sort of supposedly churning through these, you know, this crazy amount of reading um, and, I, you know, I was a young uni student. I considered that to be work at the time because it was mandated that I had to do it and I wasn't very 
pleased about it. And so the next semester I thought, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm going to choose a lightweight unit without so much reading. And I thought, oh, creative writing, that sounds uh, <laughs> a little bit lighter. So I that was basically, so I, I got into it as a slack option. And then when I got in there, I was like, oh, I remember this. This was, this used to be great fun when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12. Um, and so then I kind of kept going on that journey. I um, did a few more creative units writing units, mostly for fun, but I had one tutor at the end of my third year, Trusilla, uh, not Trusilla Majeska, Marcella Polane, right. uh, Marcella Polane, a, a West Australian writer, and she said to me when I was leaving, oh, you must keep writing, and I was kind of taken aback by that. I thought, oh, really? Okay, okay then. <laughs> um, and after that, I went overseas for a year, and I worked as a nanny, and while I was overseas, I came across the book, the Julia Cameron book, the artist's way. Oh yes, and I and I worked through the artist's way, the the whole course, and did all the exercises and the morning pages and all of that great stuff. And at the end of it, I thought, you know, I might actually give this writing thing a go. So when I came back to Perth, I did a an honours year in creative writing, and and still I think I don't think I I thought of it as a career. It was just something I was enjoying doing. Right, and, and at the end of the honours here, my supervisor said to me, you should apply for a PhD scholarship. And I said, oh, I no, I don't think so. That sounds extremely serious and no, I'm not up for it. She said, oh, just put in the application. You can decide later. It's nothing to lose. So in went the application and several months later I got a letter offering me a scholarship to study for three years and write a book. And I wow, thought, how exciting. Well, yeah, I know it was exciting. And when I looked at the kind of piece of paper and I thought, you know what, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. No one's going to pay me to write a book ever again. And <laughs> I, I really didn't have any other career plans. I didn't know what I wanted to do or be. And I thought, what the heck, I'm, I would be crazy not to do this. So, but at the same time, I think there was a part of me that really didn't quite understand what I was signing up for. Right. And I remember several months later, um, having got through the kind of process where you get it all approved and everything, I was actually sitting in my little office at the university and I and I had this revelation which was like, oh, my God, I have to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> so I was a little slow on the uptake. Um, but um, so that was kind of how I, how I came to write my first novel, A New Map of the Universe. Um, and I think even then I really don't think I – at any point thought of it as a career and um but I can't I got the bug so when I finished that book there was absolutely no doubt in my mind that I wanted to write another book that was that was absolutely clear to me that this was now what I wanted to do okay so like having come through that sort of academic approach to novel writing like you you know you've, you've had three years within a a very um creative environment I guess in a way like do you do you think that's helped your process along like did you learn a lot through that process that you apply every single time that you approach a book now I think yes and no I think when you do a PhD I mean mostly there isn't it's not like doing an undergraduate course where with the undergraduate course, you get a lot of kind of inspiration and, and examining how other writers have done things, you know, how did they make that work? You kind of take things apart. Whereas what you get with a PhD is you get kind of like a built-in editor and a sort of guide for the yep. process. Yep. And I think what you what I got from that, I mean, I had a brilliant um, supervisor, Richard Rossiter. He kind of helped me to undergo that process of stepping back from my own work and being able to see it more clearly. Um, so you're not getting the kind of um, instruction and input, but you are getting a sort of, you're getting a, a guide, I yep. suppose, yep. and someone who teaches you to see what works and what doesn't work in your own writing. And that's definitely something that I still use now. So when you approach the writing of your second novel, which was Whiskey Charlie Foxtrot your second novel? It was, yeah. So you you did that without a guide. Did you find that different or more difficult or anything like that? It was easier, I think, for me because I think what really sort of challenged me with the first book was I 
I didn't know how to write a book. And yeah. I think it was just that thought of, oh, I'm doing this enormous thing that I've never done before and I don't know how to do it. That kind of kept on stopping me in my tracks because I would just think about the sheer enormity of the task <laughs> and I would, I would get completely overwhelmed. Yeah. And I would be like, I, can, I can't write anymore. It's all gone. Um, whereas with the second book, it was like, okay, I've written a book now. I know how to write a book. And how you do it is you just sit down every day and put words on the page and eventually have a book. Yeah. So I think I didn't have that sort of freak out that, that I had with the first book. So. Okay. It was easier, but at the same time, I didn't have that that person who I could constantly go to and say, oh, can you look at this chapter and tell me how you think it's going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're obviously, you know, you, you like to try new things because the arc, which was, I think, your third novel, That's was right. quite different to the first yes. two. Mm-hmm. And you're now working on another epic sort of sci-fi quest. Is that like a conscious thing or is it just the way that your thought processes and ideas evolve? You've just changed, you know, your interests of where your interest lies at the time. Yeah, I think it's partly I, I get an idea and then the idea just sort of seems to take a certain form. Yeah. It's not that I consciously say, okay, now I want to write a science fiction novel or now I want to write a novel in documents. It's more I think I want to write a book. Here's my idea. This is the book, the story I want to tell. And then the form just seems to kind of come to me this is the best form for this work. And I don't really think about theme. I don't think about genre. I don't think about structure until I have the idea for the book. And then the themes and the genre and the structure kind of come with the idea for me. Okay. So it all evolves as you, as you work through it. Mm. Um, so your, your, um, the ARC, which is a digital interactive project, there's actually an app that goes with that. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's you, right. Which you self-published. Um, I did, yeah. <laughs> Was that, like, that's a massive undertaking. Was that a steep learning curve all round for you? Basically vertical, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Just up that ladder, yep. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was insanely steep. And to be honest, I think if I'd known when I set out how steep the learning curve would be and how challenging it would be, I never would have done it. Okay. Um, it, Because it was, you know, borderline. Uh, overwhelming the ch- level of challenge was borderline too high to cope with <laughs> yeah yeah okay mm. what, why did you think this book needs an app what made you think I'm going to do it this way it's a novel in documents so it's told as a series of blog posts and text messages and memos and emails mm-hmm. and that sort of contemporary format seemed to lend itself to the interactive form yeah and I think that's what um, initially led me to that and I think as well when I first started writing this book which was probably mm, maybe around five years ago now that was when people were first starting to talk about the possibilities of ebooks and digital literature and interactive literature it was just starting to become something that was talked about and I think I thought well I wonder you know, how this would work, does it really enhance a book? I was interested to explore what it could do. Okay. So here's a question for you. Um, what what I think surprised you the most about self-publishing? Like what, what were you the least prepared for? I think what I was the least prepared for was that there weren't the programs and software and systems in place to do what I wanted to do. I thought the whole world of self-publishing was much more advanced than it actually turned out to be. So you had to create a lot of it yourself? Yeah, I was kind of hacking through the undergrowth, whereas I thought they would be like a real trail to follow. But it turned out that what I wanted to do was really non-standard and that other people weren't really doing it, which really surprised me because I'm not a technologically cutting-edge person and I don't think I realised when I started that what I was doing was quite cutting-edge and that was kind of a shock because I thought surely someone else has thought of the things I want to do and I wasn't sure if they'd thought of them and then realised they couldn't do them or if they just hadn't thought of them. I I couldn't really tell. Right, okay. Mm. So is self-publishing something that you would do again? No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, there's a straight answer. Why is that? Um, 
Um, I didn't really enjoy having to be responsible for absolutely every single part of it. I realised that what I love most is the writing and that's what I want to put my focus on and I'm very happy for other people to think about all of the other parts of it, to think about the marketing and to think about the editing and to, you know, just to, to plan all the other logistical parts of it. Um that doesn't really float my boat. I felt like to some degree after I'd actually written the book, a lot of what I was doing was project management. I was yep. spending, you know, I spent a year of my life effectively managing a project when I would have much rather been writing my next book. Okay. Because it does, I think um, something that does surprise people when they do self-publish is just the wide variety of skills that you that are required. Um, I think there's a notion out there that you can just sort of put your book up on Amazon or whatever and then that's your job done and you just get on with the next one. But um, there is a lot more to it than that, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, discoverability is the biggest challenge facing self-published authors. There are just such a a tremendous quantity of books coming out every day. I mean, not just every day, every minute. And how does your book get to the top of the pile? How do people notice it? You have to be very savvy about marketing. You have to understand your genre and your niche and um, how to get your book in front of people. And that requires tons and tons of hours of of work and and of educating yourself. And that's not for everyone. No, because it's another job. It is, absolutely. It's a different career. All right, well, let's talk about Whiskey Charlie Foxtrot which was very well reviewed here in Australia and is about to come out in the US with source books as Whiskey and Charlie. Has anything surprised you about the experience of going into a new market because you've, you know, you've you've out, you know, leaping out of Australian waters and into the US? Has there been anything, you know, that you weren't expecting about that at all? I don't think I had really considered um the process of editing the book for a US audience, I don't think that had really crossed my mind. So that was an interesting part of the process because they they went through the manuscript and they kind of highlighted a whole bunch of stuff that, that they asked me to consider Americanizing. Right. And some of those were, you know, very everyday things, you know, can we change nappy to diaper and can we change cubicle to stall and can we change rubbish bin to trash can? And Yeah. Um, but then there were some other kind of funnier ones which I just wasn't prepared to change. So they wanted to change oval to track. You know, oh, right. The guys were hanging out on the oval and they said, can we change that to track? And I said, absolutely not because, you know, we don't have a track in Australia, schools don't have a track. They, no, have, an oval they have an oval. And an oval is a very specific thing. It's not just a kind of piece of grass. It, it means something specific. So they were kind of, um, you know, that process was just fascinating, mm. the things that they felt needed Americanizing, the things that, you know, I suppose just for me, oh, kind of understanding what I was willing to negotiate on and what I felt really attached to and wasn't prepared to let go of. Right. Like I wasn't prepared to let go of don't come the raw prawn. That oh. was just, <laughs> Do they I want was, to change that to don't I, come the raw shrimp? I, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, no, I'm sure people can work out from the context what this phrase means. And I think part of the joy of reading a book from another country is, you know, learning their crazy little idioms that they have in their country and the weird ways they express things. I think to me that's the whole point. So, you know, I think we should leave this in. I think so too. I'm with mm. you. Keep that raw prawn. What, how does your writing process work? Are you someone who spends all day at your desk, you know, staring at the wall waiting for it to happen or are you someone who slots it in around different things or how, how, how do you sort of go about getting the words on the page? Since my son's been at full-time school, I've had a pretty sort of uh, rigid routine where, you know, I drop him off, come home and just sit down. But I don't just write. I have a a very nerdy little timetable where I divide my day into kind of like periods, I suppose, and I have time for admin and I have time to connect with my writing community and I have marketing time and I have writing time. And so I have this little timer that goes off, ding, ding, okay, next. You're so (laughs) Um, organised. Yeah, it's very organised. But I found when I first started learning about marketing and social media, I got so into that stuff. It was so much fun and I enjoyed it so much and there was such an incredible amount to learn that I literally could have spent all my time only doing that and never getting to the writing. Mm. 
um, and also never getting to the boring parts like the um, tax and the mm. invoicing. And mm. so we kind of worked out, okay, there are certain things I need to do. And I, I find the timetable helps me because the boring parts of writing, like um, admin, but also things like grant applications, I find instead of spending, you know, 20 hours doing that the day before it's due or two days before it's due, I do it for half an hour a day over several weeks and it makes it m more tolerable. Do you aim to get a certain number of words down per day or are you more flexible? As, I mean, with the actual, um, when you're within your allocated writing time. <laughs> yes. Do, do you aim, aim for a certain for 500 period? words a day. Okay. I went to a workshop a couple of years ago with um, Peter Heller, who wrote The Dog Stars. Yes. And he t said that he wrote 500 words a day and that he had read about that technique from Graham Greene. Apparently, Graham Greene wrote 500 words a day every day of his life. Wow. And 500 words a day doesn't sound very much at all, but it adds up to five days a week. It adds up to, I think, 125,000 words a year, which if you count, you know, some of those words you'll throw away, that's basically a book a year. Mm. And it feels very manageable to sit down and write 500 words a day, whereas at other times I've had a goal of 2,000 words a day mm. and I've just avoided sitting at my desk because yeah. that goal has feels been too, too daunting. Hard. Yeah. Whereas when I sometimes I sit down and I think, oh, I would much rather go onto Facebook or Twitter than actually open my Scrivener file and start writing. But then I say to myself, you only have to write 500 words and when you've hit 500 words, you can stop. And then I think, how hard can that be? And so that kind of motivates me to get going. Okay. And do you ever sort of, you know, if you're in the midst of it and it's flowing well, do you continue on or no, do, so do you stop at 500? No, the theory is that you stop in the midst of it and that that way when you start writing the next day you're in the middle of a flow so you never have the terror of the blank page you don't write mm. to the end of the scene you don't kind of write till you're spent and your ideas are all finished you stop when the juice is still flowing and then when you sit down the next day it's ready and waiting and you can get straight into it well, there you go well there's something for everyone to have a try at now, in the past, you've been very vocal about the realities of making a living from writing, and you've written several blog posts on the subject, which is how, you know, we sort of, I sort of came across your work in the first place. Um, and I'll link to those posts in the show notes, but they're kind of about the difficulties that many writers face. What was the response to those blog posts? Those blog posts provoked the greatest response of any blog post I've ever written because I actually, I think what, what kind of startled people was that I actually produced the figures of how much money I had earned from writing. I think people talk vaguely, oh, it's hard to make a living from a writer, but when you actually see someone publish the fact that they only made $7,000 in a year, people mm. go, oh, wow, now I really see what you mean. And I think that really spoke to people because I think what happens when you're writing is that you kind of secretly fear that everyone out there is doing better than you are and, you know, these, t you know, tiny checks are dribbling in and, and you're feeling dispirited about it. And I think people were kind of relieved and reassured for someone to come out and say, hey, this is how little money I have made. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and I was like, oh, phew, I'm not alone. I think that that was kind of the overwhelming response. But I think the other thing that really came out of that was, um, for me was, yes, but, you know, you get to do what you love and don't be so entitled. Right, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, a lot of writers kind of came back with like, yeah, that's the reality, that's the world you've chosen. Um, go get another job, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and so there was a kind of reality check for me, which is, you know, not many writers make a living from writing and that's actually okay and so you do something else to bring in the dollars and you do the writing where you can and make a living as best you can, yeah. but you shouldn't expect it to support you. No. So you actually do quite a few different things as well, don't you? You do writing, but you also do speaking and you do um, some teaching work and you, you do different things. So do you, do you find now, like with that perspective, do you think, okay, yes, the writing is something that I'm grateful I can make some you know, sort of money from and I'm sort of out there and I'm producing my books and I'm doing my things and, you know, if I have to do these other things as well, then mm. that's the reality of it? Yeah, I mean, I enjoy the other things around writing. I enjoy public speaking and um, 
I enjoy teaching as well. So I don't mind doing those things to earn money, especially if they're writing related. Yeah. Um, and I accept that, you know, when you talk about earning a living as a writing, you're not just talking about royalties. You're yeah. talking about... All the things that go with it. All the things related to writing that you can earn money by doing. That's right. And those are kind of, you know, an important part of a writer's income. And I think even writers who sell lots of books still do those other things to supplement their income. Yep. And because, as you say, you enjoy it. Um, and I think a lot of them enjoy, enjoy it as well. Like it's just mm. sort of... I, 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 I think many people find the sort of public speaking aspect of being a writer quite difficult. Um, mm. You've you've said you enjoy it. Like, is it something that you've worked at, or is it something that you've always it's always come quite naturally to you? It's come naturally to me. I think. I mean, before I wanted to, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be an actress. I'm a show off. I like getting up on a stage <laughs> and everybody's eyes on me, and um, I've got the microphone. I can talk. No one can interrupt. Yeah. I actually um, don't find that daunting. I find it fun, and I also worked for six years as a corporate trainer so yeah. I'm confident running a workshop and um, speaking to a room of strangers so I know for a lot of people it's their worst nightmare it's the part of writing that they find the most daunting and frightening but it's not like that for me it's fun for me which is great lucky it you. is great yeah I'm lucky <laughs> I am lucky yes <laughs> so how important uh, we spoke earlier about grants how important do you think the grant process is for fostering new authors Oh, I think it's essential. I think it's so important. I think for for a lot of people, um, when they're trying to fit writing in around a lot of other things, it's just so hard to build up a head of steam when you, you know, you have half an hour one day and then three days later you get an hour and you, you can't get a flow of ideas going. And I yeah. think what the grant can do is buy you that time to um, – just kind of get a chunk of work done and, and get a flow and get a feel for where your book's going. And I think that's essential. But I think the other part of it is just the vote of confidence that it gives you. It's like yeah. somebody who knows what they're doing thinks my book is worth investing in. Yeah. And you really struggle with doubt as a writer. It's one of the biggest challenges. And I think getting a grant is like, it's like a seal of approval. It's like someone saying you are worth investing in, your writing is worth investing in, and that just gives you such a boost. Do you have any tips for people who are applying for grants? Because you, you have won some in the past. What sort, of, mm. what, I mean, what sort of things do people need to think about when they're applying? Well, I think one of the most important things is to allow yourself plenty of time. I think probably the most common mistake that people make with grant writing um, applications is that they start working on it three days before it's due mm. and I would recommend to start working on it six weeks before it's due give yourself lots and lots of time to mull over your answers to the questions um, there's also a lot of resources available that people don't look into so for example with the Department of Culture and the Arts grants in Western Australia, you can ring up and speak to um, a grants officer. You can submit a draft of your grant and get feedback on it. Wow. You can look at the projects that received the grants last time. You can um, see kind of frequent mistakes that people get in reports on previous grant rounds. And all of that information is available to absolutely anyone and it gives you such a leg up. You you will be head and shoulders above other people if you use those resources. Um, so I recommend kind of really looking around and seeing what resources are available. I would also recommend asking anyone you know who has successfully um, received a grant to have a look at your application. Okay. And if you can't do that, I would just ask someone who you think knows a little bit about it to review your application because I think the hardest part of part of grant writing is trying to make your project which you completely understand and is clear in your mind is trying to bring that alive to someone else who doesn't know anything about it and I think sometimes when you try to explain your project you can't see the gaps in your explanation because your mind is filling them in because you oh, know right. it yep. and so when you show it to another person they might say I don't really understand the connection between these two parts of your project and that's exactly what a grant committee is going to say. So right. just getting another pair of eyes on it and someone's, I think that's really key as well. Okay, now you mentioned before that you quite enjoy 
social media. Um, mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on this idea of an author platform? Are you someone who, you know, have, have you been working on building one? Yeah, definitely. I think it's pretty important in this day and age. I think people expect to be able to find something about authors online, not necessarily everywhere, but at least somewhere. Mm-hmm. If I if I read a book by someone and then I go online and they don't have a website and they don't have a Facebook page, they're literally just not there at all, I find that really frustrating because I yeah. think I, I want to know more and I want to be able to connect with you in some way. Now, I know it, it's not for everyone and you have to respect that, but I think most readers now want that. Yeah. Um, I, and I think there are so many different ways you can do it. So you might say, well, I hate Facebook and I don't want to be part of that. Well, that's fine. You know, there's there's all sorts of different platforms. So you, you can just find the one that works for you. You know, some people are visual. They love Instagram and Pinterest and wordy people love Twitter. And I think, you know, there's something for everyone. So I think it's worth taking the t- time to explore the platform that works for you. And what's your favourite platform? Where do we find you most? I think Twitter is probably where I'm most easily to be found. I really I really enjoy Twitter. I think I thought Twitter was so silly when I first heard about it. And um, I when I first looked at it, it was honestly like a foreign language. I just didn't <laughs> understand. I remember there was a Frankie magazine had a competition and it said, um, RT to to win so and so, and I was just like, "What's what? RT?" I didn't even, you know, I didn't have a clue. Um, and I think it takes a little bit of time to learn the language, but I feel like Twitter is basically a way of having the internet curated for you by people whose minds you admire. And what could be better than that? Nothing um, at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I love the the sense of community there because writing is a solitary activity and I think sometimes you do feel like you're flailing around on your own in your home office or wherever it might be and then you get onto Twitter and you say oh look all these other people are flailing around in their home offices is <laughs> feeling all the same things that I'm feeling and We're all flailing thank goodness around for together. that yeah exactly <laughs> and I think that's lovely Okay, well, let's finish up today with our usual fabulous three top tips for writing. Tell us what you've got for us. All right. So I've got a a practical tip to start with, and Mm -hmm. that is that I recommend joining or forming a writer's group. I think being part of a group of people who will critique your work is an essential thing for a writer. Okay. I have learned such a huge amount over the years from the different writer's groups that I've being part of not just having them um, give feedback on my work but the process of giving feedback on their work too so Mm. when you look at a person's work and you say this isn't working and you have to say why it isn't working and you you really learn from that because that's a mistake that you don't make yourself yeah um so that's one um and i think you know as as time passes you know when you first join or form a writer's group, you're all unknown writers and you um, are all struggling with the same things. And then over time, those are people who, you know, get books published and get on various um, committees. They're people who you can get letters of support from when you apply for things. They're people who might blurb your book. So you make really great, you form relationships with people and you can help each other along the path. So that's a a great part of it too. Um, as the second, the second two tips I've got are a little bit more zen. There are okay. We love we love a bit of zen. <laughs> so one of them is to think of it as a long game and to try and enjoy the process. So mm. I think this is something you, you know when you're first writing, it's all about getting your book published. That's a kind of you know the holy grail, and um, I, I you know that's wonderful. Those moments are amazing, but I think it it's about the journey, not the destination. Um, there's lots of ups and downs and you have to try to enjoy all the parts of it. You have to enjoy the writing and you have to enjoy the, you know, the getting out there and sharing your book with people and you have to try and embrace all the different aspects of, of it. I'm still guess. trying to embrace the waiting. I'm finding the waiting still yeah. very, very difficult. But, yes, I will think of that. I will be more zen about that. <laughs> and what about the third one? 
Um, the third one, I think, actually speaks to your um, your issues with waiting. It's, no. try to, it's try to make peace with the parts that you can't control. Oh, so so true. there are lots of parts of the writing life that are beyond your control. And um, so, you know, you do the very best you can with the parts you can control and then you you have to try to make peace with the parts you can't control. So I think there's there's no sense spending energy saying it's not fair and why did this book get celebrated when it's so mediocre and why did this person get a grant when they're so obviously untalented and <laughs> all of those kind of that trap you can get in of um, yep. getting bogged down in 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 aspects of the industry that you have no influence over yeah. um it's better to just to say that is that is how it is here are the things i can work on and i'm going to put my focus there fantastic well thank you so much for your time today annabelle it's been a pleasure speaking with you and i hope the book goes gangbusters in the u.s and um we shall see you online somewhere thank you so much allison Awesome interview, Al. Yeah, I thought it was great. I, I I love talking to Australian authors about their different, you know, the different aspects of their journeys. And I I found our conversation about creative writing, you know, courses in universities and different things like that, all really interesting as mm. well. Because I think, you know, that um, PhD program in Western Australia has has um, produced some amazing authors over the last couple of years. So I mm. think that it's um, always good to talk about how those things happen. Wonderful. Well, let's move on to our app pick for the week. What do you got for us, Val? Uh, I've mentioned this before, but okay. I am mentioning it again because I'm in love with it this week, uh, and that is Scrivener. So some people will be familiar with Scrivener. It's kind of an alternative to Word, except it's way more robust and really designed for authors. And uh, regular listeners may know I've been working on a really big project that's involved lots and lots of chapters and lots of research, lots of PDFs and graphs and all that sort of, all that sort of thing. And I love the fact that you can put it all in this self-contained area in Scrivener and it all just links to each other but you can export it into as, as a Word document when you're ready. It's just such a great working tool for me that I don't think I could have completed this big project without it and I just love, 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 love Scrivener to pieces. So okay. that's my little shout out. I'm going to have to give it a go, aren't I? I think so. All and right. if you do get confused, we have our on-demand video course, Two Hours to Scrivener Power. Mm. Which has, uh, which is by um, our Australian writers presenter Natasha Lester, who also loves, loves, loves Scrivener, and I think you would find it really interesting, Alice, uh, Al, and also many other people who are writing novels, because Natasha goes through how she, you know, creates her characters in it, and how she keeps track of them, how she knows the, what the houses they live in look like, and you know how it all links with each other, how she knows which scenes um, are, are are done, and she. You know, you can colour code it, which scenes still need revision because she colour codes mm. that sort of thing. So I've adopted her strategy of colour coding different things depending on the, the stage they're at. It really gives you this overall immediate view, okay, I've got to, I've got to do that scene and that scene, but the rest I've sorted. Um, mm. Yeah. Big uh, shout-out to Scrivener. Good on you, Okay. Scrivener. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> gradually, slowly, but surely coming to terms with the whole concept. Okay. Okay. So our working writer's tip this week is not so much a – well, it doesn't stem from a question but rather an observation uh, because I've been um, hanging out with quite a number of authors and people often ask me about my opinion on various things in the publishing industry and often is it's, you know, oh, have, they've got a great idea for this particular book. What do I they need to do? can they do x and i tell them well if it's this kind of book they should do y or whatever it is so you know i just give them my honest response mm -hmm. and my honest response also sometimes contains caveats like oh look it's really hard to do it that way but instead you should do it this way mm -hmm. and what i'm finding i'm really surprised at this at the number of people who are actually wanting a negative response from me oh. so they actually want me i can tell that they want me to tell them that it's really hard and you'll never get published so don't even try because that's almost like you know they permission not to start yes or permission hmm. not to they, they've perhaps they've written their book but permission not to go to the next step 
and let it just sit mm-hmm. in the bottom drawer. And it it kind of shocks me a little bit and makes me a little bit sad because if they are really sometimes I'm I, I I've sat down with one author and I said, oh look, this is really good, but it's not right for this reason. So all you need to do is change that whatever that was, and that thing wasn't a major thing. It was mm. just it's really small thing. Yes, yeah, small mm. thing. And she basically kept repeating it back to me, but in her own, she repeated back what she heard, which was, so you're saying it's not going to work. I said, well, no, it's not going to work in its current form, but all you need to do is just change this one thing. And she repeated again what she heard, which was, so it's not going to work. I just shouldn't do it. I was like ready to hit my head against a brick wall because Mm. it was a typical response that I'm hearing from a number of authors that they just don't want to go to the next step. They want permission, as you say, not to go to the next step. And it's a bit sad. Well, maybe, but I think it's a confidence thing too. And, hmm, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Does that thing. happen to you? Do people? Well, what I tend to get is people who ask me, um, they say to me, uh, well, for example, like when I was putting together this writing um with children workshop that I'm doing for the City Writers Festival. I was thinking about all the different things that people say to me about um, trying to fit writing in because fitting writing in can be incredibly difficult. Yes. And so they, I get asked about it a lot yeah. and I always say to them, well, you know, like I find that I need to stay up late, you know, I, I work I work at night, I work in the middle of the night or I work whenever, I, I, you know, we talk. I talk about the different strategies yeah. and they say, oh, but I can't stay up late because x mm. and i say okay well what if you got up early mm. oh i can't get up early because x mm. okay <laughs> so what if you you know i like there are a million reasons not to do it there yes. are a million reasons that you can say to yourself um you know if only because i think sometimes it's very easy to hide behind oh i'd totally write a book if only i had the time yeah well my point is you do have the time. Mm. Um, you just have to make the time. And mm. I think that that I'm always surprised by the people who will then say to me, I get a lot of oh but, oh but I, yeah. oh but I can't because of X or oh but I can't, oh it's all right for you because of Y. And I'm like, well, actually we've all got the same number of days. Everybody's got jobs. They're all, we're all busy. Um, but if you, I, I just think the point is you make the time to do the things that you really want to do. Mm. And I guess with your people perhaps it's a similar thing in that sense of if you if I did that one little thing that you suggested mm. well then I'd be in the position where I'd have to send it out and I'd have to find out if it was any good yeah right and mm. maybe that's just going to be too confronting for me right so yes, possibly it's that mm, I don't course. know maybe I mean someone maybe if there's anyone out there who feels that way they could let us know let's talk about it yeah email mm. us mm. at podcast at writerscenter.com.au yeah but um, that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. What are you going to be up to? I am going to be counting down the days till the end of the school holidays, Valerie. Thanks for asking. <laughs> what are um, you going to be up to? Oh, I'm going to be getting on a plane for like 24 hours without oh, And much coming back. Yes, coming back. So Fantastic. Be, Yay. Yes. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for listening. And we really appreciate all of your shout-outs and for letting us know what you think about the podcast. If you have 30 seconds, we would love it if you could leave us a review or a rating on iTunes. It's, that really helps us in the rankings. And um, please do connect with us on social media. Alison, we find you where? You find me um, on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And please come and say hello to me on my blog at alisontate.com. Yes, absolutely. You'll find me on Twitter at Valerie Koo. And, of course, you'll find the Writer's Centre show notes. Uh, I mean, you'll find the show notes on the Writer's Centre website (laughs) at uh, writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. And, of course, the Writer's Centre Twitter handle is Writers Centre AU. So thank you, everyone. We'd love hearing from you. So until next week, we'll chat to you then. See you then. 